Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today we have an absolute killer on a guy I look up to a ton. He is from the South, from Alabama, talking about none other than Michael Perry. Mike, thanks for hopping on the line with me. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate you having me on, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's well needed, and I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Like I said, I looked up you for a long time, and I love what you do out in the deer woods. I just think you're one of those legendary guys that has a lot to say and just want to uncover some of the tips and tactics and things you do in the deer woods to be successful today. So if you don't mind, let's uh, let's jump right into this thing. Uh, I appreciate all the comments, man. Yeah, I've kind of followed you for several years too now, so that's pretty neat. Yeah, it was it was really nice meeting up with you down in the uh, Southern Mobile Hunters Expo. And, you know, that show is just, it's so awesome to meet so many different people and especially the fact that it's regional-based where we get to go to a Southern one, we get to go to a Northern one and shake hands with a bunch of absolute killers. And uh, I was actually standing at your booth, admiring all the deer you've killed, staring at some of those giant deer and very, very grateful that I got to meet you down there, man. I yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, that's a real neat show. A real like more. I don't want say like like a more of a better, smaller community like show. Everybody was all about it and tight and talking and you know just enjoying all the conversation with everybody. So it was real neat. We had a great time up there. You know, talking and sharing stories with a bunch of people from all over the southeast and some of them from up north too. So it was a very neat show. I'm looking forward to that continuing. So. I hate that I'm going to meet the northern one because I like to go see some of that stuff, but I really like listening to other people from different parts of the country talk and kind of see if I can put anything that they're doing into use down here. So, so I'm going to miss and hate not get to go up there. Yeah, I wish you could make it up there. And, you know, from my perspective, that was one of the great things about going to that southern show is I got to listen to a bunch of guys from the south that just absolutely get it done. And it was a lot of different tactics. I picked up a ton of different things from from all the guys down there that were speakers, and I learned a bunch from you. And I'm going to try to just keep an open mind and deploy as many of those tactics as I can this year. I, I think that there was 
a lot to be said down there and there was some really good knowledge and wisdom passed around and hopefully we can do the same thing on the show today. I know we will actually because you and I have spoken deer quite a few times on the uh, phone and I just absorb all the knowledge I can every time we're on the phone. So, so Mike, let's get into it. Let's, uh, I, I want to run through just an, a basic introduction of yourself. You know, this is going to be, we have a bunch of Northern and Midwestern listeners. So if you don't mind, just introduce yourself and you know, what you do and how long you've been hunting, why you got into it and, and what you love about it, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, my name is Michael Perry. I'm from Alabama, the northern part of Alabama. I'm 58 years old. I work at a chemical plant. Been doing that for 26 years this past June and a 12-hour swing shift. So I had to, you know, work that out to put the ground in for hunting. But I grew up, I was born in a county, but then we moved to a city when I was young. And uh, my dad had started picking up trapping and I was following him around and he fixed me up with a couple of traps. And so I started peeling around driving bicycle when I was like 11, 12 years old and, and started trapping and really enjoyed that challenge and, and done that and up until I was say 17 i ended up taking my ged after 11th grade and joining the navy for five years and deer hunted some during that time frame but never was able to kill anything with seen a few and then stayed in the navy for five years come out and then a few years later met my wife and you know kind of settled that down and started hunting more because my dad you know i had hunted the whole time and my brother was picking it up good then so so I actually started get back getting into hunting, but never was successful until I was mid twenties. So and then I didn't kill my first buck until I was thirty one. So me being fifty eight now, so a kind of late start as far as that. But the trapping aspect of it was a challenge, of, especially coyotes and dirt trapping. Is trying to get something to put their foot on a one inch piece of steel, you know, on whatever land it is you're trapping. Be it be fifty acres or ninety two thousand acres, it was with a cool challenge. And I kind of think about that now with hunting bucks, is you know trying to put yourself in position close you know to the trail or where he's going to put his foot at or step in front of you at without him knowing you're there so it's that's one of the unique challenges i do now and i really you know i've really you know took that to heart with the bucks and like a little bit older class bucks not as old as some people kind of want but my goal is kind of like three and a half and older on public land so i've been pretty successful you know doing that over the years but and uh, kind of chasing the rut down here because we have a crazy rut that starts November and through several counties and goes all the way to you know, February. So, but I really enjoy it. I got my wife doing it, and uh, she loves it. And she's killed a few deer and and uh, has passed and has an opportunity at some monster ones. But she's got the fire and has enjoyed that. She's actually uh, took a a buck with four different type of weapons: a regular bow, a crossbow, a muzzleloader, rifle. And I haven't done that yet, so she's ahead of me on that. But we really enjoy the public land aspect of it, traveling around with the camper and a few little dogs we got. And we've had been out west a little bit in Wyoming and stuff, public land hunting. So we've kind of spread it out a little bit and looking to, looking forward to kind of spreading out a little bit more as I get a little older and don't have as many obligations at home now that we might be able to do a little bit more traveling for us, whitetail, like, say, Missouri or Iowa or something, big bucks places, so maybe a little bit bigger bucks than we got here. So Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see you get out in some of the western states and see how you do i know that it's you're just gonna do absolutely awesome out there and the terrain is cool you know it's gonna be like to me the first time i went to kansas that wide open terrain and those brushy draws and the river bottoms and being able to see 40 deer from a tree stand in a night was just it was awesome it was a really cool experience and the fact that you get to share that with your wife i just think is is absolutely awesome man that's uh that's my dream right there to be honest with you is to be able to travel and hunt with my wife and just have an absolute blast 
out in the woods. I mean, that sounds absolutely awesome. And the other thing too, Mike, is just thank you for your service. Really appreciate the fact that you did that. You know, you sacrificed quite a bit. And so can't thank you enough. That means a lot to me. But real quick, Mike, let's get into, I saw a couple of deer at the, at the Mobile Hunter Expo. Before we get into too many tactics, I'd like to kind of almost go backwards about this, but I'd like to talk about that real giant buck that you got down there. If you don't mind just breaking down that story of that buck a little bit, because that's how I first learned about you, to be honest. I remember seeing a photo of that deer and I was like, holy cow, look at that thing. And then I was like, wow, that came from the South. I just, on public land, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, I'd just like to run through that story if you don't mind. One of my tactics is, is, is putting trap cameras out for like a year in advance, like for the next season. So I found a, a like a shelf above a creek crossing that had that found a couple of big buck tracks on. So I put a camera there, and then I had I had set up like a lock on close to that area, and I went back like in April after after deer season, scouting around. And I said, I'm going to move a lock on and, and kind of figure out a tree. So I moved this lock on, and then while I got through taking care of everything, I went down and pulled that camera card. And when I got back to the house, I I had this freaky looking, you know, just uh, he was four and a half in, just a bunch of stickers, just crazy looking buck. And I had him like in October and November in good shape. And I had him again in February and he looked kind of poor, but but he was a thing. I mean, just amazing buck. You tell he's going to be a monster. So I kind of set up on him the next season and I hunted like two different events, like two different gun hunts where it's two or three days. And I missed him by one day and when I pulled the camera, so I don't ever pull my camera until after season. And he had built his body back up, and uh, like I said, I missed him by one day in the daylight. He'd come following three does the next day, like at 10 o'clock in the morning. And he was probably in the 160, but he didn't have all the stickers. He had a couple splits. So so the next season, I kind of figured by the two seasons before, it was first week of November when he would daylight some. So so I didn't, I didn't go in there any until the first day I had off was the last day of the mud loader hunt. And I'd already told, you know, a couple of my friends, so I was, I said, when I start hunting him, I'm going to talk my mother load every hunt to have because I'd already killed a record book buck with a bow and record book one with a rifle on the same general piece of public land. I thought it'd be cool to, to get a record book with a mother load if I could get him. And if not, the way when the leaves it fell off, I'd actually bought a crossbow because the way this place was, it was weird angles that the pinch that I was kind of hunting that would be tough for a regular bow shot as far as judging some stuff. So I bought this crossbow and going to use it when the leaves fell off. But I went down there on that muzzleloader hunt the last day and and at 9, say 9.30, I, I seen something moving and that year was kind of, had a late greenery. So it stayed green like almost to December. And uh, I had a little seven point, probably two or three year old seven point. Most people would have shot him when the muzzleloader had come about 20 yards. I was kind of watching him. He eased off and was eating wide oats. We had a bumper crop of acorns that year. And, but he kind of peeled on out of the way and 10 minutes later, something caught the corner of my eye and, I seen movement. I just seen this huge side, huge G2, and maybe a stick or something, but it was just a huge looking rack step behind some Calcutta or uh, Calcutta leaf, a little big old leafy bush we got down here. It's green. All I could see was his rear end for a long time. I kind of got positioned where if he stepped out, I could shoot, and he, and he stayed back there. It seemed like forever. But anyway, he stepped out at about 45 yards, and I squeezed that mud roll off, and I could I could tell he looked like he hit. He jumped. And I could see like a mule kick and a white tail, and and he took off. And I thought I heard a crash, but what you know, have things run through your head. I wasn't sure, and I didn't see him fall. So I always, if I don't see one fall, I always wait an hour before I even think about trailing them. So anyway, I kind of 
had to pee or something after about 30 minutes. I got up and was doing that, took care of that. And then I thought, well, I'll go ahead and kind of pack some of the stuff up. Ended up knocking that pee ball off and made a bunch of racket and just it sounded like I dropped a dang anchor out of a tree. But so I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and eat it down there. And I couldn't, it was so green, like I said, I got turned around and didn't find the exact spot and had to do a little grid and found blood and followed it to where he'd run in a couple of trees. He'd knock bark off of two trees. That was that crashing I heard and it flipped him around and I could see this huge side sticking up. He was laying there and boy, tears started coming because he, I mean, he was a huge body and the rack, when I seen the rack, I knew it was the one I had on camera and it was just like, you know, I'm, you know, like I say, 50 something years old and killing this monster thing. It was just, it was just kind of gut wrenching that all that had come together and, and happened, you know, having the history with him on the trail camera and then actually waiting and being patient not to push him too early and wait until I knew about the time he was daylighting and it all worked out. So it was, it was, it was crazy exciting. I, I ended up, I knew I was going to fall full body man him, so I just barely cut a slit in him, and I knew I was going to get some people to come help me, so I, I drug him for an hour and something by myself, and I had dropped my wife up. She was hunting so a quarter mile away up on the side of a ridge, like a, a trail that goes to a secondary point, and uh, I got up there to her, and she said, well, you did it, because I was late. She said, well, yeah. I said, I got him. I said, you what? I said, I got him. Said, How big is it? I said, I don't know, but he's big, so. We got down, went to the truck where we get signal. I called a biologist and told him that I'd kill a big and then hopefully he would be at the checking station. He said he would. So then I called four buddies and we ended up getting down there and getting taking a cart down there to him. And by the time we got him out, it was nearly, it was say 30 minutes before dark. So, but it was a, it was a cool experience and sharing it with everybody and my wife and, and the biologist guy. The biologist, I've known him for since a, a, from a different man there. He worked a different man there years ago. So it was a pretty neat, you know, friendship experience and just taking something like that you know just huge with a with a motorboat and end up being a state record at, by big old state record out by six inches he scored 196 and three eighths gross with the butt masters and boone and crockett he ended up getting 188 so that's you know for alabama there's only 30 i think 34 or 5 bucks is recorded in the Boone and Crockett book from Alabama. So, you know, and you'll have a lot of states up north that put a hundred in there in a year. So I feel pretty blessed to, to be able to accomplish that. And then I have like three record book books now off of that same piece of public land with three different weapons. So just amazing, amazing event. And just, uh, he's a, a, just a deer to, to grow that kind of wreck in, in five years on public land and, and eluded people, you know, to make it that was amazing. So, man, that's, that's such an awesome story. And I don't think it could have went to a, to a more well-deserving hunter, to be honest with you. I know you put the work in. I know you're really passionate about doing this. It's what you live for like it's what I live for. And the thing that made me really smile there was talking about how the rest of that night went for you after you killed it. And, you know, I think about the story of killing my biggest deer, my 186. And I killed that deer. I called my dad, my brother, and my best friend who all live five hours away. And my best friend got there first. I was still dragging the deer. You know, by the time he got there, it was late at night. And then we uh, we took it back to the apartment I stayed in in Columbus, Ohio. And my dad and my brother came down and we all celebrated and scored the buck on the table together. And, you know, it's the second best day of my life. It, it really is where I just, I absolutely love that. And that story is just such a memory for me. You know, I lost my dad and having that memory of that was one of the the last great things that we did together. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a special thing. It's so crazy to me how much how much deer hunting can bring people together 
and create those memories. And, and that's what it's all about, man. So hearing that story just, you know, it lit, it lit me up. I, I love hearing stuff like that. So that deer, I want to get into tactics a little bit on this deer specifically before we jump too much over to the topic today, which is rut tactics. And this is going to fold into that a little bit, but you mentioned having historical trail camera data of that deer. And that's something that, to be honest with you, Mike, I've really been struggling trying to correlate over the last few years, just because my food sources are shifting a lot. So my question for you is, with the historical data you were finding in that spot on that specific deer, were the food sources the same every year that he was showing up or at least semi similar or were they totally different and he was still showing up in the same area? Well, it's, uh, this is a big woods type of management area. It's, it's 90 something thousand acres and there's only a few places that there that they're doing actually any cutovers. There's some food plots around, but just the general food source, you know, you know, the south is a little bit different. You know, kind of go off in the weeds a little bit. The south is different to me than the north, especially a mature buck, because you kind of think about it like a doe is either raising babies or pregnant year-round, so she's always having to eat a bunch to take care of them, and the young deer are growing. Well, a mature buck in the south, once he gets his body mature, he doesn't have to eat, you know, like a normal deer. Once he gets his body, you know, totally maxed out, let's say three or four years, so we'll say four years old, he can, you know, browse around at night and maybe he's off to a food plot or hay fields or whatever and then pretty much fill his stomach up, go back and lay down and, and you know, and uh, use them four stomachs and regurgitate and pretty much stay hidden from everybody all day. So our, we have red oaks and white oaks and a lot of green briar and, and he just, I just believe that a mature buck like that in the big woods just browse around. He's, he finds a place where he can stay alive and then just browse around enough to just, just to make it through the winter part as far as the rut. But, you know, in the spring and summer, he just gets his body back back because he knows he's not really being pressured by people. So, but we don't have uh, crops or anything that's that close where, you know, he, he'd have to go, say, six miles or so this boat would to do that. So, but by, I had another trail camera that was like a quarter mile away and I'd get him on both of them. And I never heard of anybody else having any pictures of him. So I just think once he got to maturity, he just, he had enough green bar and, and other, other natural brows to, to survive without having to do a bunch of stuff. And uh, like I say, most of the time our acorn crops are kind of, you know, it's like opening a candy shop that's been closed for 10 months or whatever. So they use that as just something that don't, they ain't used to having all year and just, just go get some of that and gorge on it where the main stuff they're living off of is browse. So I just kind of key on that more as a diversity of where, you know, different trees meet, say pines, the, you know, the hardwoods and maybe some uh, cedar thickets because I've seen them where they eat cedar some during the winter. So, but just a variety of mixture of stuff is what we have. And so, so because you have that variety and those deer are more focused on browse, you're seeing the historical data means more on those big old mature bucks because they tend to find those little pockets of seclusion where they're not getting pressured or hunted very much. And they just hold up in those pockets and find a way to survive. Yeah. And, and they don't have a, you know, say our doe groups, you know, they being with it like big woods, I think it's kind of, they're more nomadic, like, you know, especially the does, they'll, they'll find our fresh trees and they'll, they'll hang out there for a week or so and then they'll move because they'll be at pretty much anywhere does do. So when your bucks bust up back to the groups, I kind of look at everything like a big picture, say a couple mile square with different points. Cause say if you're postseason scouting, when you come in the buck sign, you'll see, you know, there's during bachelor and bachelor groups, most of them. So, you, so as, as they make it through the summer and early fall, they split up. So you kind of look at a map and look for a bunch of different points or secondary points, you know, from a mile to two miles out, then kind of figure out how, 
how they would browse around or travel around checking for different doe groups on on different points and say flats that are higher up because the wintertime does are almost like women to me they don't like being cold so when it gets below 40 50 degrees they like they like to be laying somewhere where the sun comes up it shines on one of these variety of points and depends on kind of the wind a little bit and the bucks will travel around during the rut checking these places and i kind of you know lay things out with a map and then by putting boots on the ground is how they would actually access going checking that stuff. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I want to back you up real quick, Mike, because there's something that you said in the first minute of our tactic talk. I had chills when you said it because it's it's a mystery I've been trying to figure out for a long time and trying to figure out nomadic deer in the big woods. And what really gets me is I'll have food sources that come in, those deer will show up there, but then they just vacate. And then you don't see them again for, for a, a month or a couple of weeks on any of your cameras and then they pop back up again for a little bit you know two or three days and i just i get in this chase mode with some of these big woods bucks these big old mature bucks and i'm just always behind them and i can't catch up to them and i have a lot of buddies that are excellent hunters uh cody schleich from ohio is is an example of one of these guys that we have this conversation a lot about chasing these types of deer and the thing that you said that blew my mind that i do not want to just you know, bypass and forget about, because I think it's going to be extremely valuable for people, including myself. It opened up a whole new, I mean, I just had a light bulb pop up in my head here, but the thing that you said was that the big old mature bucks that are done growing don't need the same caloric intake or, or, you know, food that these growing deer do where like the younger bucks or the does or the fawns need that food source because their bodies are growing. When a big old buck hits maturity and he's not putting more weight on, at least consistently throughout the year, and he can focus more on browse or on less primary food sources and more of like secondary food sources just to stay alive, that makes so much sense to me. And that is something that I have been trying to wrap my head around for so long. But the way that you said that just immediately, I was like, yes, this is exactly in the big woods. I've been missing this piece of the puzzle for a very long time. And I just have to figure out how to take what you said and make that turn that into something for myself. I don't know how to do that yet, but what you said makes a ton of sense to me. And so going forward with some of these big old mature nomadic deer that I'm finding in the big woods that aren't necessarily hitting the white oaks or aren't hitting the red oaks when the reds are dropping consistently like the other deer. I think that's because, like you said, they're finding these little nooks and these little honey holes that they know they can survive in better, especially when pressure starts rising up throughout the season. And they just find a way to survive. And then they pop in every few weeks to check on their doe groups, which is why we get them on camera again. And then they disappear. So I think they're just hiding out right under our noses and just relying on browse sources more than the relying on, you know, the very obvious white oak flats, for example. Right. Well, you figure a mature buck, say five years old down here, by the time he makes it five years old, he's already seen and smelled and heard so much different things to put pieces together what, how, how to stay alive, you know. He done smelled every kind of gun oil and boots, boot stuff that people put on for dragging extra things and, and tie that in with people and just a variety of things and heard he, he can know when the truck trucks are start, you know, being more on the highways, more on the gravel roads, rocks popping on the tires and loud mufflers. I mean, he's done learned so much by five. You know, a thousand times faster than than a human would learn by the time they're twenty. So, so he's he's done figured out how to stay alive to make it to that. So he's he knows that daylight stuff. You know, during hunting season is is the death of him. So, so he's done figured that out. So you got you got to kind of I always try to think about that because ninety percent of the time, if I get a buck on camera, it's always nocturnal 
up until you get close to the rut. You know, you have like, most of the time I have like two phases, you know, when they first start laying some scrapes, the ones that are less scrape lines, I love them to do that. I don't think some of the big, big bucks, I don't think they spend as much energy doing that because they, they know their dominance. They don't have to, you know, show their dominance as much as, you know, some of the younger ones are. So because they, cause they've already done all that. So, so you, it's kind of harder to find or base, you know, scrapes and stuff like them for your strategy for them. So to me, but there's, they're just learning so much how to survive. And the only time they kind of make any kind of mistake, it was maybe a rut, which that one didn't. He was just, he had a buck, but he was using a decoy and it just so happened it didn't work for him to me. But I had this area in my head that I chased the buck around a little bit last year and, uh, he's a big 10 point. He's got a flyer. Uh, my buddy knew about him and hunted him and then he tagged out and I dove in a couple times after him and he stumped both of us really bad. But at the end of the year, I was on a ridge that he popped up on uh, once or twice throughout the season. And I was on the south facing slope of this ridge, just in a little nook where for a west wind, it would have also been leeward. And it was, uh, it was an old blowdown. And so there was this, you know, let's say 50 foot by 50 foot section that just had tall grass and it's in the middle of a cut. And there's one lone pine tree in the middle of that little grassy section. And I found this big giant signpost rub that has been used for years and years and years. And it was destroyed from that year. You know, it was definitely a fresh rub. And I remember thinking, man, there's no food around, but I wonder when this was made. And I almost wonder now because I didn't, I didn't have a camera there. I wonder now if that buck wasn't going back to that area and that was where he was living. And then he would just venture out on some of those ridges throughout the year, just to, like you said, check on those doe groups. He'd, you'd see him on a point on a ridge one time, and then he'd never come back to that point the rest of the season. And it just seemed like he was, he was so nomadic, but I wonder if that might've been his core range. And that's one of the only places that we weren't really focused on. We, to be honest with you, we walked, at least I did, I walked right by that spur ridge, never anticipating a deer being out there, but he could have been right there the whole time. And we played right into his cards by doing, you know, going out on the main ridges where all the other deer were, and he was tucked in this little nook. Uh, very possible. So, yeah, I kind of, you know, I like our bucks. They don't find a specific bed that they use, you know, year, complete year round. Is, to me, is almost impossible because they got so many. That that country there is so rough with, say, boulder fields and stuff. You, they could find 25 different places to bed within a mile. So it's kind of harder to pinpoint them like that. And a lot of times, them places where they're at, the way the thermals are, the thermals will be down, going down nearly to, say, 2 o'clock in the evening before they get any kind of switch for a little bit. So it's almost impossible if they're already there to even even get in there and even think about hunting without them knowing you're there. So it's, so they've learned that in their lifespan to do that. Where I don't know what kind of terrain you've actually got where it's that rugged where you're at. But these most of our big old bucks, they get somewhere where that thermal and the wind is to them just pretty much most of the day. I have big deer here that act like young deer sometimes and they do present like a very killable situation like I told you with that that white oak flat and that cornfield earlier how they just drop down in the middle of the day to do that but I also have deer that I chase that are I would say probably more pressured and those deer act totally different in my opinion. I learned this from Nathan Killen a long time ago, some of his earliest podcasts, but Nathan is a very, he loves hunting steep terrain, the steeper, the better for him. And so I took that to heart a few years ago and I've really been focused on steep terrain. And what I find is the deer that are bedded on in that steep terrain, like let's say you have a south wind, he's bedded leeward with the wind over his back. So he's on the north facing slope. Those steep north facing slopes really don't get a thermal pull up throughout the day because they're shaded. You know, everything else around them sunny. 
And then you have that sunny south facing ridge and it's pulling the wind up. Well, the wind has to, the thermals have to come from somewhere to provide the thermals to go up that ridge. And so it's pulling down on that north facing slope pretty good throughout the day, in my opinion, in some of these spots. And it has to be really steep to do that. But, but yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the big deer that I find, the truly mature bucks are in those very steep areas where they don't have the thermals pulling up to them. Like everybody really thinks they do all day long. Yeah, that, that makes it real tough because I've had people ask me, well, how you get there to it? I said, you don't, you don't. If you do that, you're just letting them, you're playing into his hand then. So you just try to time it out and catch them when they're going to check them doe groups is, is what I try to, that's my strategy rut hunting is is trying to catch them when they're going to check doe groups. So pinches and, and higher up edges, you know, I have more, I have better luck a little bit higher up, say the upper third, but a lot of times that depends on what kind of summer or fall you had where if, if you have any kind of drought and the, the browse dries up up top you kind of have to step down a little bit lower where the where more of the greenery stuff is for the browse they'll travel that so but i have more luck on the upper parts kind of controlling the wind when it does you know pick up because if you try to if you try to come in from the bottom a lot of times what because uh, it's tight quarters that will get a lot of ricochet so it's it's really tough so i'm trying to always figure out how to get in or access in from the top unless it's a, a wider open bottom that i can come in from say way in the creek and be able to position myself on thermal hubs you know that's within gun range or bow range yeah fortunately here in ohio that's that's what we have is the wider bottoms with the creeks that run up them and so 95 percent of my access is exactly what you said i walk up the creek into those hubs but so while we're on this topic, we're on, you know, terrain features and uh, the lay of the land down there and how you're approaching that. Let's just jump right into it now. Let's let's jump into your rut hunting tactics as far as from a scouting standpoint, from a preparation standpoint, and then actually getting into season. So the first thing I want to ask you, Mike, is when you're out scouting around on a piece, like let's say this piece you've killed on before, you know, you're out scouting a new piece, a new part of it, a new area. What are some things that you're picking out on a map that catch your attention to tell you you need to go in there and look at that spot? Well, if I'm looking at a map to start with, I'm looking at multiple multiple train features, multiple points coming together, multiple timber changes, you know, multiple, say from a long ways off, multiple food plots or, or multiple places, different parking areas, a bunch of parking areas, that's, say on the outskirts, and that would maybe con- kind of influence deer movement where people walking in. So then after that, I just get boots on the ground, start walking draining just upper and lower, trying to find a track and also looking for older historical rubs that go both ways and huge community scrapes and then always keeping in mind on how if i can access or how i could access without crossing where i think the deer would be or be using and always like from i always try to look for a place to hunt that has multiple factors you know more than one thing say say a creek crossing that goes to a shelf with a with a timber change that's leading toward a bluff gap or some kind of other pinch going to a blown down bedding area you know multiple things that would kind of factor for a deer to use it not just one thing or two things just as many things as i could that could go into play as where a deer would be funneled or or kind of natural edge or a natural course of movement where they're heading that way so the multiple things and then looking for big tracks and big droppings to then once i find that market and then kind of look at the map kind of 
might have to go back again and kind of correlate it with a map if I don't have a good enough signal or a hard map saved in my phone where I can actually, you know, look at different ridges because or secondary points to try to figure out where he might be coming from when he's doing that or also looking for where the does are, you know, bedding that too. Yeah, so... I, I agree with you 100% on the, the the multiple factors that you're talking about, where it seems like the biggest deer that I find are in systems that have a lot of terrain change. So, you know, let's say ideally five, eight, 10 different sub ridges that point out in different directions to give them a lot of different bedding opportunities, uh, a lot of clear cuts and a lot of edge or diverse habitat. You know, it could be blowdowns, it could be beetle kills. Uh, obviously, uh, the clear cuts or the select cuts, uh, as many food sources as possible. So I'm looking for the same thing as many red oaks, white oaks, uh, chestnut oaks, cornfields, soybean fields, alfalfa fields, the more things that I can stack into an area that are, that's a hard to access spot and isn't going to get pressured. I just feel like I find more deer. So I completely relate to you there from a mapping standpoint. So I'm actually going to, we're going to dissect each one of these things that you talked about. And I want to start out by you just putting your general boots on the ground. So basically we're going to take a deep dive into that. You mentioned walking the ridges. I'd like to just dive into that. So you're going into a system. Do you typically, before you go into that system for the first time, boots on the ground, do you typically map out the travel route you want to take? Or do you get in there and get a feel for it and just, just end up in an area? You know, like, do you say, hey, I want to hit every transition here from these cuts? Or do I want to hit the upper third on all these ridges looking for sign and the bottom? What's your process with putting boots on the ground in some of these spots? Generally, like, like so me and my wife, we do most of that together. And sometimes I go with buddies, but like we're, we're covering two different levels. And then I just, we just grid it off, you know, all the way from, the, say, the upper third all the way down to the creeks and just trying to pick up any kind of sign. And once you find any kind of sign where it's rough, scrapers, and then stop then, then start, you know, looking for, say, minute sign or, you know, old browse where things have been clipped off or, you know, more of the rubs and then start kind of gridding that out a little bit, trying to, you know, figure out some kind of pattern right there because that big woods area, you know, we, we might walk a half a mile or a mile before you find any kind of signs. So once we do find any kind of sign, we'll stop, look at there, and then, then make level changes going all the way up to any kind of point, secondary point, you know, bluff gaps, you know, we just break it down and it, it'll take you, if it's a newer area, it'll take you like three or four trips and say 20, 30 miles of walking just to cover a square mile area or more the best you can. You might not get all of it, but it, it takes a lot because you're trying to find any kind of, you know, everything is out of the way because the most of the time our maps on X or whatever, don't sometimes they don't show everything that you're kind of looking for. Definitely don't show like, like he's talking about blowdown or a thing that could direct deer, you know, and beetle kill if you don't have a, a you know, a real new, a new map. So, but any kind of, once you find any kind of sign, I break it down hard right there, you know, document whatever I can, you know, big rubs, big scrapes, big tracks, you know, beds, and then move on and go to the next, next little, say, a canyon or, or point, secondary point, and break it down. If you find sign, just keep jumping around and you find sign and just work from the sign, basically not, not working the actual you know, dead woods. Yeah. And so you made a really good point there. And I want to point this out because the more experience that I gather every year, you know, I'm going into my, this will be my 19th or 20th year deer hunting. And so, you know, I'm nowhere near you, but I'm gaining experience. And I went down a path for a long time where I began generalizing what deer should do. 
and every buck should do this. He should, they should always travel the upper third. They should always come down to a hub. They should always bed leeward. I had this whole list of things that deer should do in my head. And, you know, I think that is the worst thing that we could do as a deer hunter is generalize deer because each deer is an individual. Each situation is going to be different. And like, I mean, you mentioned a drought, for instance, how that's going to change travel throughout the year because browse levels are changing in elevation. And you can see the same thing with food sources and everything else. So I think the big takeaway here that I'm taking away from you that I just think a lot of people are going to catch on to is to not generalize our scouting and to be very thorough. And what you're doing is you are leaving no stone unturned. And I think that that is the absolute best way to go into a new area. You know, we can say that it's efficient to go scout the upper third and just run all the leeward ridges. And you might have a lot of success doing that, but you are not going to be as intimate as a, as a hunter as Mike's going to be if he goes in and spends 30 miles going back and forth grid searching a one square mile area. And so I think that you're going to pick up so much more information doing that where you're going to find every rub. You're going to find every scrape. You're going to be able to pick up more tracks of deer. You're going to find a ton of beds. I just, the areas that I've had a lot of success with consistently, I've had sporadic success in areas that I've speed scouted and been generalizing deer travel before, but the areas that I'm consistently having success in and that, you know, I, I've gotten to a point with some of these spots where if a deer is in there, I have a really good idea. Like if I glass a deer in a field and I know he's going to be in a system, I know that thing like the back of my hand. And I can tell you each turn he's going to make in there. And if it's a deer I want to kill, I feel like I'm getting to the point where because I've spent so much time and so, like I'm talking hundreds of hours in some of these areas like you're doing, it makes me a better hunter overall. And it just helps me continue to learn. And so it's such a great point that you brought up. You know, you said it differently, but I think the takeaway is not generalizing deer movement, not generalizing what a deer should do, but go in and actually figure out the area. And if you have the time, I think that the best thing to do is grid search it like you're talking about and doing it with a buddy, like you said too, because it's a second set of eyes. I overlook a lot of stuff and then I take a buddy out in some of those areas or they look at my map or it could be a hundred different things. I'm thinking of, uh, I scouted a spot this year with Alex Chop and Alex is a brilliant mind in the deer woods. And I looked in an area and canceled it off. And he looked at it just from a mapping standpoint and said, hey, this ridge should be pretty good because it looks like this. And sure enough, when I was in there, it was actually the best spot. And I just didn't even, I overlooked it because it didn't set up the way that I thought deer should use it. And so, so that's a great point, Mike. That's, I just really wanted to hammer that home that, you know, a guy that has killed giant deer that consistently kills mature bucks in the South. And it's just one of the most high level hunters that I know is grid searching these areas when he scouts, trying to find any sort of clue that he can to just get on a deer. So the next thing I want to get into here is actually some of the sign that you're finding and dissecting. So you talked about finding rubs and scrapes and, and tracks. We'll throw all of them in here real quick. So the first question I have for you is, what is a good track for you in the South? What are you, when you come up on a track, what are some things that you're doing to determine if that is a a buck or if it's a good mature buck and how are you using that that data i've learned something over the last few years like y'all so your big buck tracks up north y'all usually have like a big old just a big rounded foot huge rounded foot yeah is that right yes sir they hardly ever do they hardly ever like y'all go back and you spread toes y'all, if they get more weight their toes spread out so just normal walking yeah, they, they do in some areas. It, it depends on where you're at. I have seen them spread out quite a bit. If they're any stride above walking, it doesn't have to be running, but if they're like a walking a brisk pace, it seems like they spread quite a bit in some of these areas. A lot of our bigger bucks, I don't know what it is about the weight or for, just because our leg structure is smaller than, say, y'all's northern deer, they do, 
they'll tend to spread toe more and be a longer track and more up to their dew claws, you know, on creek crossings and, and drains and stuff, looking for that and big dropping. And then, you know, that's, you know, you can tell a buck track versus our doe tracks are generally a lot smaller. They're half the size of a buck track. So looking for that big track and then, and, you know, big rubs and, you know, huge community scrapes. And always, whenever I find anything like that, just stop there and stand there looking and ask a bunch of questions, you know, why? Is that track there? Why is it pointed that way? Why is it going that way? Why did it come from that way? Why did it rub on that side of the tree? You know, a bunch of different factors trying to figure out why or trying to, you know, just put more pieces of a puzzle together. Why you're looking at it, just instead of just saying, why well, the buck track? And then keep on going. But just stop and, and be patient and trying to, you know, correlate why that track is there. You know, if it's high, up high or if it's up low or medium level or, or what. Just any kind of factor that I can kind of, you know, like I said, just putting more pieces of the puzzle together and just learning every year, learning more things, keep an open mind. And, you know, where like you saying about leeward side versus, you know, northern side versus south facing slope because sometimes a big buck will hang out more on the north and some of them will do it on the south and in bed, you know, normal. But a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't. So always be open-minded and don't think that everything's going to work the way you want it to work because most of the time it ain't going to be the way you want it to be. It's going to be the way they want it. I completely agree. So with tracking these deer, with going around looking for tracks, you're doing that when you're scouting. Are you doing that right up until even while you're hunting, are you always looking for tracks and trying to figure out exactly what that means to you in that situation? If I'm out in the woods, I'm trying to pay attention to all that track-wise now. The majority of our scouting is, is post-season. As soon as the season's over with, all the way up until, say, the end of turkey season, you know, before things turn green, just because you can see so much more now. When it gets to this high heat, I don't mess around the woods that much. You know, we don't have places working, you know, glass fields or anything, so. I kind of stay out of place and then up until you think we're acorns are getting close to dropping and start spot checking for food sources and see if, if we've had a drought, how it's affected the browse, you know, spot checks like that. But generally I'll have some kind of plan, you know, already in place and what I'm going to do as far as, you know, the rut. Now, early season, I got a different, you know, strategy, but the rut, you know, I'm, I've already pretty much figured out by historical trail cameras what places maybe by wind specific or where i would hunt or where i'm gonna start out at yeah so real quick just to back up a little bit when you're when you're looking at rubs i just want to continue through the sign thing just a little bit more when you're looking at rubs are you more concerned with like the the width of the rub on the tree or how big of a tree it is or how tore up it is you know like deer with uh a lot of characters sometimes will shred the bark off or like the height of the tree. You know, is there any things like that that you're really paying attention to? The height means a lot, you know, as far as a mature buck. And also some of the aggressive bucks will snap stuff off. You know, they'll actually do more damage to a tree or snap off like one inch sapling. You know, you know, younger bucks, you know, kind of rub them lower and, and, and just a little bit. But big bucks will get deeper, you know, more shavings on the ground, deeper, maybe gouges, what they're touching behind the tree or to the side of them that depends on how big a rack is just kind of you know you'll learn that stuff over the years how a big rack buckles the way his rub he'll touch more stuff sometimes on trees if they're close to other stuff you know and sometimes in scrapes sometimes our bucks will take their antlers and actually run their antlers in the scrape you know and leave time marks in scrapes so that kind of you know give you an idea but mainly the you know, higher up you know say knee high and above for a bigger mature buck i agree with you on the height thing it seems like the bigger mature bucks and i don't find a ton of rubs 
But the ones that I find that are in the areas that I'm targeting a big mature buck do seem to be higher. I've never personally seen a lot of rubs get made, to be honest with you, like visually in person. But I, I assume that the bigger mature deer are making those those taller ones. Um, another good point that you made there is just the like the tine marks in the trees behind the tree that's actually getting rubbed or seeing broken twigs. You know, it's going to give you an idea that, hey, this deer's tines have to be at least this long if they're hitting the tree behind the tree that he's rubbing and leaving marks. Or even in the scrape, you could probably figure out, you know, if it's if the deer makes the right marks in the dirt, you might be able to see the width of the deer. Like, hey, his tines on both sides were this far apart. And my favorite point that you made there was those the snapped off saplings. So some of the best rut hunters that I know, actually the majority of them have all pointed this out to me when I've you know asked them these questions is the snapped off saplings. And I think that the thing you guys are all keying in on there a lot is the fact that those snapped off saplings are pretty much made when that deer is full of testosterone and very aggressive because that's a very difficult thing to do. He's got to be really fired up and there's only a couple times a year that he's probably that fired up. And so I think that from a rut standpoint, those snapped off saplings are probably a huge indicator that there was a deer there during the rut that was being aggressive. And you know, I, I found a spot like that scouting Kentucky the other day. I got down in a hub and it was grown up quite a bit with green cover, but what I kept finding is if I looked through the browse, through like all the forbs and stuff growing up, I could see these like 24 inch saplings about the size of both my thumbs put together completely sheared off. And so talking to all you guys, what that tells me in my head is that's probably a pretty good rut spot down in that hub because there's been a lot of aggressive sign making over the, over the last few years in there. Uh, yeah, and I'm not a big rattle, you know, guy that rattles a lot, but that when you see one aggressive like that, you know, that's, I will probably try to rattle that deer some, you know, during a certain time of the year because he's just got that, you know, more aggressive posture. We talked about putting this sign together. You know, the thing I want to get into now, you've, so you found some tracks, right? You found a big track, you found some really big tall rubs, found some snapped off saplings. You've got a big scrape that you can see the old tine marks in and you have this piece to the puzzle. How are you determining where you want to hunt in that location now? Like you found the sign, it set up good on a map. You went in, you boots on the ground scouted, you found the sign. What are you looking for as far as a, a place to rut hunt in that spot? And are you rut hunting that the first year or are you running cameras in there to verify it's a good spot first? 90% of the time it's verified by cameras first. And then always, you know, before I put a camera in, that's one thing is I won't put a camera somewhere unless I know I can get there and access it and actually hunt it. Because, you know, like that big buck I killed, there was a camera there. You know, he didn't get his picture that day. He he walked down a little bit lower. So that's another thing you think about on, you know, as far as getting pictures of bucks. Sometimes they don't walk right by it. So because they don't, a lot of times, and that's another way a big buck, buck lives, that he don't always walk the same trail or same path all the time. He, he varies it a little bit just to kind of, you know, keep his more senses aware more so. But I always verify it with a camera ahead of time. You know, I'm looking for a place, pinch. Let's say above a creek crossing because I don't like getting on the bottoms by creek crossing unless it's somewhere where the wind is controllable or if I want to do the evening. So, but it's got to be tied in with a creek crossing, tied in with something going to say a timber changes, you know, the habitat changes, elevation changes, ruggedness, you know, bluff gaps. And that camera has shown me that during a certain time of the year that more than one, you know, buck has come through this a shooter, you know, say three or four or five of them and, and say during a week to 10 days time frame. So I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, I've over the years I've learned, I don't like 
you know, targeting one specific buck is fine early season, but when it comes to the rut, pre-rut, I'm changing tactics, and I want to bet. I'm a, I'm a bet man or I'm a gambler. I want to I want to higher odds. You know, the better, the best chance for something to come through. So I'm finding somewhere I can access, get in on the pinch, and camera has verified that that bucks are using a certain area during a certain time of the year and certain days. And I'm always documenting them days, and then and I'll slip in there. I'll wait and slip in there at that time frame. I won't go in there before then or. You know, just ahead of time, I just wait for them specific days and have a plan made before season starts and then, then stick with it. And, you know, as long as the wind is not going to where I think they're coming from or where they're going. If it's going over, I don't really worry about it going over because most of the time, if they get to that point, I could have them shots. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that's where this whole thing's starting to come together for me, where the historical data that you're capturing during the rut is... Would you say that that's that's typically because those doe groups in the area are coming into heat at the same time every year? So you have like a pocket or a family group of does that have a five to seven day window, and that's why the activity heats up there. Right. You know, generally, you know, sometimes you know year to year it could move a little bit. You know, that that can go with your acorn crop or mass crop, but the does tend to you know worry about more than a buck would. So so you just kind of pay it. Sometimes you'll be you know flexible between three or four days there, and if you're not having any action or not seeing anything you can move but if i'm seeing a one doe or whatever i'm sticking it out for four days in a row maybe maybe five it just depends i think it's the perfect time to roll over to actually hunting so you know i can think of a lot of areas that i have historical data through trail cameras that there's a lot of rut activity in there like let's say i have one in particular i'm thinking about that october 28th to november 5th it seems like this one drainage just the doe groups come in and there's multiple bucks in there chasing around all day long it is an absolute circus in there and so you're finding areas like that and i'm sure that throughout the years of doing this and capturing that historical data that you have a bunch of areas that set up different dates where you can follow those dates to those spots and hunt them so my question is when you find a spot like that you determine you want to hunt it on those dates let's say that those dates are you know for like our traditional rut hunters up here, like let's say that the dates that that area is coming in and the, you know, there's going to be bucks running through there's November 7th to November 12th. You know, a lot of people get really mobile during the rut and they bounce around a lot looking for active chasing or that active sign. Are you more focused on that? Are you more focused in giving that spot the due diligence and just sitting there and putting the time in in stand knowing your historical data is going to pay off and you're going to be in the right location that it could just shift a day or two. Right. I'm, yeah, I'll spend four or five days, you know, waiting by the historical data. And I don't, but I'm always ready to be mobile because if I'm seeing something happening, say twice, if I see something happen twice, it's out of range or whatever, then I'm moving. As soon as I can, I'm moving it right in. You know, the second time I see a buck trailing or, or just say on the move, just walking, looking, I see two bucks doing that over a thirty minute time frame. I'm moving down there. I'm not going, you know, or up there or whatever it is to that action spot. But generally, if I find a place like that and I know it by historical data that action is going to be sometime during that time frame, I'll stick it out three or four days. You know, and sometimes I won't see nothing for three days. Might see one. You know, the buck you're looking for, whatever, on the fourth day. It just because being a big woods area and situation and our does i don't know exactly how y'all does do up there but our does whenever they have their babies and raise their babies they stay split apart you know in smaller groups up until after the rut you know they're starting to grouping back together big groups say nine ten fifteen does whatever but so there you got a a better chance of them actually buck looking or over a three or four or five day time period because they're, you know, they're, if, they, if they got off a doe or if they're just still searching, you got more time for them to come to that area because we don't really have a, 
high dense you know deer population in this area so we see the same thing here with the doe groups where you know they have their fawns with them and it does seem like they're split up into those individual families for a good amount of time and then late season then you'll you know you could see 20 of them together late season when they finally bunch back up but the thing there that i think is really important and this is something that i want to start doing more myself and i can take once again, I can take something else from you, Mike, because you just keep giving this knowledge out. But the thing I really like there is you're basically finding the spot within the spot. So your historical data is putting you in a general location that you know is going to be good that time of year based on past data, which makes all the sense to me as far as a rut situation with these doe groups coming into heat. And then once you're in that area, you're finding the spot within that spot. So the spot is good, and now you have to find the exact place to be, and that's where you're shifting around. So your shifts aren't macro mobile shifts across different drainages or miles apart. Your shift in one of those areas that you're going to spend four or five days in is going to be a very micro shift. You know, it might be, from what I was taking away from you, it could be as little as 50 yards to the other trail that those deer are just utilizing more. Am I correct in right. saying that? Right. Yes. Now, say, now, I don't want to make a major move or not really a major move. Say, I'm, say I hunted there, that was a four-day gun hunt or whatever. I hunted that, then I'm still off. And if I feel like I might have pressured that too much or I feel like it's, I got another spot, well, that, say, a two-mile area, I've learned so much data over time keep doing that postseason scouting and i have on say another spot every now and then bucks be on this different pinch and i'll move i might move it and bow hunt just because i don't want to be you know over you know i ain't gonna spend two weeks in the same spot or six days so i'll have multiple places and i'll when i I keep looking through you know keeping that always always keep that big buck imagery and time rope down and so i got a book i write stuff down and i keep all my big buck trail cam pictures on the computer and look back through them for five years whatever and and kind of pay attention to what areas so you and then be able to move you know it might be a little bit more action later on in this spot you know if or if or if the acorns were better in this spot and for the does hang out at you know make that move then so red oaks are starting to fall later or water oaks are falling later be able to make a little bit move bow hunting because I, we don't have where i hunt at the gun days are limited they're only peak specific days so i can move and bow hunt you know a fresher area so area that i hadn't pressured yet but I always I always have a plan laid out how I'm going to do it through the rut. That makes a lot of sense to me. And so you can also bounce through these, like explain the, the rut thing down there in your area to me a little bit. Like up here, we have, uh, we have like, let's say, you know, late October into the middle part of November is typically the rut that everybody takes rutcation for and, and hunts hard. And then, you know, a month later, roughly 30 days later, we'll hit that cycle again, but it's, it's a lot weaker. And then if those does aren't bred about a month later into January, I've seen this a couple times where I'll have a big old mature buck chasing a doe or even chasing a, uh, a yearling around. And so we have like a, to me, it's, it's pretty much three cycles, but they weaken every cycle. Is yours like that, or is your rut just a little bit different than that? It's like that, in, you know, in, in say all our places. But we have, say, the main area I concentrate on early is the the northern part of the state, where I killed the monster one and some some of, the, some of the bigger deer. Is it starts? They've done some uh, conception date studies around November 13th is the initial beginning of the rut. It'll play out into, you know, the, the bigger seeking phase on up until, like, say, the middle of December, your most action. And after that, I'll move to a different part of the state, or me and Kathy will, that's the rut starting to pick up toward the middle of December. And we'll do that for a couple of trips. And then there's another part of the state 
where it starts in January and say mid-January and I hunt it for a while and then maybe another part of the state that's late January into February rut. So I always kind of, you can have fun chasing it down here. You get three bucks. So, so it, I mean, you've got a lot of options and I, and I stay on the move doing that. So I killed three different bucks on three different man last year. One of them was just a three and a half year old buck, but I killed two four and a half year olds on two different man areas. So just try to, I mean, it's fun, and you don't get as, you know, bored staying in one place for a long time. But I, but I would spend the majority of my time, say, a month and a half a year, the first the first part of the season in the, the what I call the big buck area, the record buck area, you know, the one that's got a little bit better genes. So the last thing I want to get into is we've talked about hills a lot. Is that mainly where you find yourself hunting, or do you utilize areas with a lot of water at all? The main... You know, the main initial place. Now, that second place I go to, uh, I've got a swamp area that I, that I really love hunting. I mean, it's, it's a place that I pretty much we didn't, me and my brother kind of figured it out where you can say, say there's three trees down there that you could climb for a week or two periods during that rut and that you could get a chance to something major. And we just figured out a way that the way a bucks are funneling around the swamp edge, checking, you know, pine fingers. It's not really, it's not a real high elevation or extreme elevation. It'd be like a 50 foot change or something that those bed on those sage spots. And they're kind of pressured from people say a half or three quarter mile away where they're accessing access roads by some food plots. So, but that's a lower area, a swamp area. And I love hunting that. It's just, you can, it's, you can spot check it easier because they leave tracks so, so easy in that that you can kind of, you can kind of make a, say, if you need to make a 50-yard move or something, the tracks will tee that, and so it's a, a fun place to hunt. So. so let's dive into that a little bit, if you don't mind, because to me, hunting the rut in a marsh or swamp environment is difficult for me, and I just, I haven't put those pieces together yet. So if you don't mind, if you were a new hunter to that sort of terrain during the rut, like myself, what pieces of advice do you have for me when looking for, for a good rut spot in that sort of terrain this swamp lays out you just treat a swamp just like you would big wood whatever a spot within a spot thing or a spot within a spot within a spot it's always find the edge of the swamp close to some kind of transition little points secondary points you know and or cutovers or or pine thinnings or something like that some other diversity versus just taking off going through the swamp going to the middle or looking for something in the middle because there's still deer or still creatures of edge, so they use this swamp anyway. They use the edge more than they would say in the middle of the swamp, but they'll come across some edges like from five different directions. So, so I don't want to intrude. I don't like intruding way into the swamp because you can you'll cross too many tracks or trails. You know where where deer come through. As so I always stay to the edge where I can see into the edge of the swamp, but I'm still seeing the toward the edges of them fingers and then and the draws and you know secondary points and they use it's hard to say it just depends on which way the wind is because i don't care what this place i don't even care which way the wind is blowing because they can use so many different ways of traveling and they adjust with it by that wind it would just be a little bit higher or a little bit more in the swamp so it's crazy when they get to rut they just they could come across that swamp and i've killed them at three feet behind me and and 75 yards from me to left right or straight in front of me or from the other side it's just a, it's a crazy pinch where it's like an x in the middle of everything you just get in that x and then just be patient and wait the biggest things to take away there from somebody in my shoes in that situation would be try to stay out of the internals of the swamp or the marsh 
which makes sense because that's going to be your your typical bedding areas but you're going to find the best travel on those edges and the transitions and and then stacking that like you talked about earlier stacking that transition up against some you know subtle ridge points or something like that you're just increasing your odds the bucks like you say they'll bed in them swamps more than the does would the does still because it's cooler weather they still want to be sun exposed whenever they're bedding to me and that's yeah so you're getting you pick a edge or this it's got a couple of different diversities or different timber changes close to where them does are bedding and, and stick with that. Of course, you got to make sure there's tracks and some historical sign. You'll see historical rubs over the years, and I keep cameras in there that kind of, you know, keep me advised of what's going on year to year. So it's just that part. To me, the swamp part is kind of a little bit easier than the, than the hill stuff because the swamp stuff don't change as much as the hill stuff could as far as, you know, the acorns that the does are, are, are kind of floating around with. Mike, I've, I've had you on here for over an hour now. I think it's about time to wrap this thing up, but I do have one more question for you. And that last question is just, what is your number one tip to somebody that wants to become a better rut hunter? Um, when you take all your information, like say your postseason scouting like that, and you make a plan, I've always, it took me a while to figure, especially younger guys, younger guys kind of start second guessing their stuff more. So always when I make my plan, I stick with my plan and trust it and don't let any other kind of influence, outside influence affect that and that also goes into saying is like your style of hunting or how you want to hunt always keep an open mind but find a system or tactic that that you're more suited for you know don't be pressured into one way or other don't be pressured into one specific type of stand or type of saddle whatever be flexible and be able to make changes and be able to have the equipment to be able to make them change in the adjustment. And another thing is make sure that you're so comfortable with your equipment, take care of equipment, do the checks, you know, your bow stuff, make sure you're strained, all that. And, you know, equipment's in good shape and your rifles, you know, make sure what boats need to be tied is tight and you check it, you know, before season and be comfortable with it, practice with it, practice with your bow, shoot 3D tournaments, whatever, you know, get as comfortable as you can with equipment and be able to, you know, trust yourself. I always preach with my wife and stuff, but don't pass a shot for a better shot. Be be confident in your equipment that you can make a tough shot when you need to. And then, and just be patient. And like I say, just trust your plan and have some, a good support group for things that you need, say as help or scouting or being able to, to get a deer, gear out. Because you know, a lot of people worry about other things. And the biggest thing you need to worry about is getting the deer flat. Get a sucker flat, then you can worry about all the other stuff later, the dragon or, or tax nerve or whatever. You got to get him flat before you can do anything. So concentrate on all your efforts and in a way of taking him or accomplishing their goal first. And then all those stuff is secondary. I love that. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I learned a ton and I'm sure that the listeners are going to learn a ton as well. Where can people find out more about you and learn more information and follow along with your season? Facebook under Michael Perry, then Instagram is Michael Perry 9. Uh, got a YouTube channel, 18 Outdoors, and then the book. If they more interested in some of my tactics and stories of how I killed some of these bigger bucks, I've wrote that book, you know. It's on Amazon. So, but secrets to taking mature bucks on public land. So, and it's on Amazon, or you can message me, and I can get one to you if you're interested in it. So, uh, but just that'll be it. And if you want to send me a personal message, I'll I'll, I'll call everybody that wants to talk, and I'll message everybody that messages me. So, I'm, I really enjoy you know talking deer hunting and sharing. And I'm sure you know from what you've talked to me and stuff, we can talk it all day or all night. I love all of it. So, I love meeting different people and people from all over the country. I don't care. Where you from? If you're deer hunting, hey, we're friends. So. I I couldn't agree more. I absolutely love that. Well, 
Mike, thanks again for coming on the show today, man. We will talk soon. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review, and go check out Michael Perry. Oh,